welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Counterfeit yellowtail found in the UK. Wine merchants increased sales in 2020. Napa Valley Library Auction raises nearly $1 million. And as ever, our Wine of the Week. Welcome to the latest edition of Wind Up Weekly. What have we been doing this week, Katie? Another week full of webinars, which has sort of been the case over the last year, uh, given the pandemic and resulting intermittent lockdowns. But really, these virtual events have really come a long way, and there's some great content uh, coming out with them. One from last week is one that I helped host uh, for New York Wine and Grape Foundation around the topic of sustainability. The host was Pascaline Lepeltier, and she hosted a a panel of winemakers uh, from Wolfer Estate, Lamoureux Landing, and Herman J. Weimer Winery. The uh, foundation is actually rolling out a sustainability program uh, over the next year, and it's really important and fascinating to see that that these grape growers who farm in a region where it's quite cool and and there's quite a bit of obstacles that that they face when it comes to cool climate viticulture, like disease pressure, for example, that they're so committed to sustainability. And despite these obstacles, they're really finding ways to be green. I didn't get an opportunity to um, watch this webinar. You're supposed to watch all of my webinars, Matthew. Well, I was actually recording an interview at the same time, so I was unable to interview someone and watch the webinar. But I look forward to it because I think what's happening in New York is quite interesting. And that topic of sustainability is, of course, an extremely important one. My interview was with um, an importer of Italian wine, and we specifically focused on Sardinia. Because I recently did a tasting of Sardinian wine, and the wines were fantastic, but really diverse. That was what interested me the most. So I really wanted to talk to um, Mark Middlebrook of Porto Vino and the Sardinian wines, because he's been to the wineries and visited the, uh, the well, I nearly said country, because Sardinia is kind of a country um, rather than a region of Italy. It's really its own thing. And a couple of the wines were extraordinary because they were aged under floor, but not fortified. So light sherry, but not light sherry. So I really wanted to delve into those. And didn't he call those vinos de meditazione? Yes, meditation wines, wines to reflect on, wines to think about, wines to drink by yourself rather than conversational wines, more of a inward-looking kind of wine. And they were really extraordinary, and just an example of what's happening in Sardinia. So that interview is up on Matthew's World of Wine and Drink on my podcast. Well, I'll be sure to give that a listen, as I hope all of our listeners do. Another wine event that I attended this week is Wine Future 2021. And I say attended, but I'm still attending. It's actually a five-day affair. And each day is, geez, nearly, I'd say five hours of sessions back-to-back. So covering a lot of topics here from speakers from all over the world. Uh, I was very impressed, actually. They have a Spanish, a live Spanish translation uh, option in the, the Zoom webinar, which is uh, really useful. And so they're covering, you know, topics of sustainability. Uh, there was a particularly uh, good se- session uh, earlier today. Um, and then also topics about the impact of COVID-19, uh, reviewing and reversing discrimination, really kind of covering all aspects of, of the industry. And it's been very well done, in my opinion. Uh, 
So I'm sure uh, many of our wine trade listeners are also uh, registered for this event. I hope you're all enjoying it as much as I am. It seems pretty intense. Um, the last few days, it's just seen Katie wandering around the house with a computer in hand, listening to these um, kind of reports and what's going on in the wine world right now. And some pretty intense conversations, but that's what we need. Indeed we do. Now, on with the news. After a number of customer complaints at a Birmingham supermarket in the UK, trading standard officers seized 41 bottles of Yellowtail and found them to be fake. Yellowtail's parent company, Casella, confirmed that they were not genuine, and other bottles from across the UK have also been seized. Chinese gangs are suspected of infiltrating the market with counterfeited bottles, which include Shiraz, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Pinot Grigio. So counterfeit is no stranger to the wine industry, we know, but normally most of these counterfeiting crimes uh, have to do with really high-end kind of luxury bottles. We're talking the Domaine de la Romani Conti, uh, Penfolds, for example. Um, not so much with these sort of entry-level yellowtail wines, seeing as they go for about, what, $5 a bottle in the supermarket shelf? I was very surprised by this story for the reasons you mentioned. We've talked about counterfeiting and fraud quite a bit on the pod in the last year or so. But as you say, usually with expensive wine, and often within China. Here we've got a kind of a reverse story, whereas Chinese gangs are being accused of doing this fraud, but in the UK, with cheap wine. And I have to agree with you, why would you counterfeit Yellowtail? I mean, Yellowtail is a big market, and lots of people buy it, so I kind of get that, but how much money are they going to make? And also, I was impressed that the customers knew that it was fake because Yellowtail is not the greatest wine in the world, and yet they knew there was something wrong with it. Well, I wouldn't question the customer's palate. I'm sure Yellowtail is one of those brands that, you know, it has that uh, consumer loyalty. So you can imagine that any customer of Yellowtail is probably drinking it on a fairly regular basis, and it could probably be pretty easy to spot the difference. Um, also wondering, just based on the bottle, how they were able to confirm that it was a counterfeit. Uh, I wonder if it was just from the taste of the wine, or if there was something actually uh, different about the label, the capsule, or the bottle. Yeah, that wasn't reported. I, and again, I agree with your point about these regular consumers of Yellowtail probably have a very good understanding of what it tastes like, whereas people get fooled by very rare wine because they've never tried it before and they just assume that it's the, the real thing. Uh, yeah, and I wonder if they did tech analysis on the wines. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they have a lot of information on what the wine should taste like. But maybe also the bottles weren't 100% convincing. And I think my last question here would be, you know, if the, the price of Yellowtail is quite low to begin with, I, I wonder how much it costs to, to create these counterfeit uh, bottles and whether they were really saving that much money. And I wonder if they were paying tax, because that's the large part of the price of a bottle at this price, especially in the UK. A recent survey by Wine Paris and Vin Expo Paris has shown that wine merchants saw an increase in sales in 2020. Of the 737 merchants who responded to the survey, 60% said they had seen positive growth, and another 15% had seen stable sales figures. In comparison, of the 658 wine producers who responded, 34% had seen good sales and 22% stable. 
The biggest gains came at the end of the year approaching the holiday period. The growth has been, not surprisingly, particularly concentrated in online channels and home delivery. Sparkling wine sales fell, although sales of red and white wine were up. And this follows news that although sparkling wines such as Champagne had a successful end to the year, sales in January were down an 18% compared to the same period in 2020. Well, that underlines yet again how well the retail sector has been doing uh, during times of COVID. Uh, Meanwhile, the UK government set out plans to reopen the country following a period of prolonged lockdown. Outdoor dining and drinking is set to be allowed from mid-April, a cautious plan that contrasts with a series of optimistic, unfulfilled promises last year. This news hasn't been wholly embraced, given that the reopening of pubs is nearly two months away. Retailers are also skeptical that drinkers will be content to sit outside in Britain's notoriously unpredictable weather. Although we're here in California, outdoor dining and drinking is very pleasurable. Even if I was in the UK, I'm pretty sure I would brave rain and wind to have a pint at a pub. So we'll see um, how that progresses. In related news, our former boss, Ben Stevenson of Hanging Ditch Wine Merchants, where we both used to work, and now um, he has a new business, Blossom, Blossom Street Social, in Manchester was featured in The Wine Merchant. A UK publication. Indeed, which um, he posted uh, the piece on Instagram. Ben has always based his business model as a hybrid. So he's a wine merchant, but not a wine merchant. A wine bar, but not a wine bar. Um, A restaurant, but not a restaurant. Instead, a hybrid of all three. He was always a man with many hats. And still is. (laughs) Uh, But the police failed to understand his model, and they closed down Blossom Street Social for legally selling beer off-premise. And the shop slash bar slash restaurant was forced to be closed for two weeks, having to hire a law firm to defend his case before the business was allowed to be reopened. And this just felt to me another example of authorities' lack of understanding of or concern for the hospitality industry, how it actually operates and how people's lives are affected by it. Yes, and I think if anyone could uh, be getting in trouble for doing something legal, it would be Ben Stevenson. But he did lose lose quite a bit of revenue. I'd recommend uh, checking the Hanging Ditch Instagram uh, feed to uh, to read the article. Yes, it's a great read. And you know, to your point, Matthew, the it is the disconnect between the authorities and uh, the wine industry, kind of that lack of understanding. Uh, we see it time and time again with the wine tariffs, um, you know, with politics and and the wine industry. Um, and I think this kind of disparity will probably be likely to continue, and that's why it's so important that we have these industry associations uh, that are proponents of the wine industry and give them a voice in the greater conversation of politics and law, etc. Here in California, Napa Valley Vintners have had to rethink a couple of their uh, most prized events of the year, one being Premier Napa Valley, uh, which is a trade-focused auction, uh, which typically takes place at this time of year, and then also Auction Napa Valley, which is geared towards consumers and to take place in summer. The consumer-facing Auction Napa Valley uh, will not take place this year. Uh, The NVV is actually taking a break and um, rethinking what that event will look like in the future. And now, as for Premier Napa Valley, in lieu of this in-person event, the Vintners hosted instead an online library auction. Following five webinars with Antonio Galoni, 
Oh yes, that's another webinar that I saw last week. Over 500 people attended the auction, spending $933,000 on library lots. Three Magnums of 2015 Screaming Eagle sold for $40,000, while a 15 Magnum Vertical of Schaefer fetched $42,000. Five six-liter bottles of Opus One, including one from 1979, also sold for $40,000. Well, as you mentioned, um, Napa Valley Vintners is having to rethink um, how to um, schedule these events and how to organize them, uh, partly because of COVID, but maybe because also these events that kind of run their course and needed a new direction. But it's interesting that people were willing to spend so much money on an online auction, though there were some pretty tasty uh, bottles up for sale. But as a general question, do you think online auctions are the future? Well, there certainly are not as many bells and whistles as you can apply to an an in-person event. And the Napa Vintners were very good at that. Um, They'd always feature uh, celebrities and, you know, singers to to perform during the breaks. Uh, However, you know, this will look different. But with a name like Antonio Galoni, that still, I'm sure, attracts many uh, consumers and trade. And the webinar that I watched was actually quite good. I mean, it was it was a smaller, more intimate platform where, you know, winemakers could actually discuss their wines uh, rather than this big room of people all milling about and barely really having a chance to talk to each other. Uh, this instead kind of gave a real platform for the winemakers to talk about why these wines are so important and why they are worth the money. Uh, maybe not $40,000, but, you know, also supporting a good cause. So that's the other piece of this is like kind of the charitable uh, element and now these days I think people I mean we are saving money right we're not traveling all over uh, we're not eating out all the time so maybe those people who do have those dollars to spend they want to spend it and put it towards uh, charity and then why not get a couple of really expensive bottles of wine while you're at it your enthusiasm makes me suspicious that you were one of, you were one of the customers who paid $40,000 for three magnums. Just give me a paddle and $40,000. And now, Katie, for our wine of the week, which is? 2011 Malvasia from Colaris in Portugal. That's right. This was a fun wine for many reasons, wasn't it, Katie? And you were particularly enamored by it. It was. I do love myself a bottle of Malvasia, and this one was so quaint in a little 500 milliliter bottle. And at just 11.5% ABV, so you can enjoy more than a glass without feeling too bad. I really wish more wineries made 500 milliliter bottles. It's a perfect size. Because 750 can be quite difficult to finish, and that's why people are always asking, oh, how long should I keep a bottle of wine open? How long will it last? Well, how should I put it in the fridge, or should I leave it out? And it's like, well, people don't actually always finish the 750s, but 500, mm. Mm, that usually gets finished. That's a sweet spot. Yeah, and that low alcohol as well, so lots of things going for this wine. And then a very historic region as well, so Kalarish is just north of Lisbon, and it's the westernmost appellation in Europe. And it's extremely historic, too. And one of the advantage of, advantages of Kalarish is that it has sandy soils, because it's so close to the ocean. Which means... <laughs> well, it is. I mean, there's <laughs> nothing that's even closer to the ocean, right? Nope. And that means there's no phylloxera, and there's never been phylloxera. And so after um, phylloxera hit Portugal and the rest of Europe, Kalarish became a popular appellation, because you could actually grow the vines and make wine 
there. And um, so the early decades of the 20th century collage was extremely important, though its history goes back uh, much further than that. And the winery is Adega Regional de Collares, and the winemaker is Francisco Figueiredo. We think that's how it's pronounced. A historic winery um, that actually, under fascist rule, all Collares wine had to be made there. Fun fact. Yes, for much of the 20th century, Portugal was ruled by a military dictatorship, and the um, the dictator Salazar had knew nothing about wine, but at the same time decided he was going to make all the rules for wines. Everything was kind of conducted by him. A lot of the rules didn't make sense, but wine made in this region had to be made at this winery. But now it's much more modern and contemporary, and so we don't have to associate it with fascism. Well, that's a relief. And the more that I read about this wine, uh, the more I fell in love with it. So we love the packaging, uh, love the wine, uh, and then the production methods. Uh, so six hours of skin contact. Uh, you know, you and I both like a little bit of skin contact, it's true. And you did comment on that when you were tasting the wine. True. There's my expert palate. Uh, and also spent one year in tank and then six months in old food. And it's from 2011, so a little bit of age to it, but it's still very fresh, floral, aromatic. A lot of fun, I think, as well as that little bit of texture coming from the skin contact. And the grape is Malvasia, but Malvasia is a family of grapes, not an actual grape. And so there are about 17 different Malvasias across Europe, as I learnt when discussing Sardinian wine. And this one is actually called Malvasia de Calarish, so it's a local indigenous variety, which is a little different from other Malvasias across Europe. Kind of like the Trebbiano of Italy, perhaps. It's funny, isn't it, that growers are very imaginative in, name, in, in naming grape varieties, and then sometimes not very imaginative at all. So you do have these families like Malvasia and Trebbiano and Muscat, which have similarities, but are also which are quite different. So what's in a name, Katie? Perhaps we need another vino de medizione to uh, contemplate that. I agree, and I think because this is an old wine, this would be perfect for that. Cheers to that. So thank you for listening, and happy Wine Wednesday to all of our listeners. Um, thanks again for tuning in each week. And just a reminder, uh, if you do like the pod, we encourage you to rate us, uh, leave a review. It'll help others find us. Katie now has to rush off to organise a blind tasting, which she has not fully prepared for, but I'm sure she'll put together a great tasting, and maybe we'll discuss it in next week's pod. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for another wind-up. Cheerio! <laughs>